Our reading this morning is Nehemiah 8, which is found on page 492 of your Pew Bibles. That's Nehemiah 8 on page 492. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped their Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, 
and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. I think we say, well done, well read. Not an enviable task to meet all those names, but you did very well. Lord God, we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that as we focus on this chapter in Nehemiah, you would come and speak to us. You would bring your word alive. You would be the one who helps us to focus on you and give us understanding and gives us insight into what you're longing to do for your people and for the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of James, in James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And um, that's quite challenging because it makes me think, well, what should we be asking God for? What could we be asking God for that we don't have because we've never asked? In the book of Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, Habakkuk prays like this, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. And what he's saying in that prayer is this. He's saying, Lord, I've heard of what you've done in history. I know of the great things, some of the great things you're capable of. But why won't you do them in my day, Lord? I'd like to see them with my eyes. I'd like to see you move amongst my friends. I'd like to see you move in this point in time. And one of the things that studying the scriptures can do for us is it can inform us as to what God is capable of. Because it's all very fine and well saying, let's pray for God's blessing on one another and for one another. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and bless. But we can pray so much more informed prayers if we know what the Holy Spirit is capable of. Habakkuk didn't pray, Lord, I've not got a clue what you've done in the past, but have a good time anyway. He said, Lord, I know what you can do. I know I've read of your fame. And in this chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 8, we're going to focus on some remarkable things that God is able to do. And my agenda is actually very, very simple. I would like them to lodge in our hearts. I would like us to get a hunger to see God do them again in our day. Because there's no reason why he couldn't. God hasn't got worn out. He, that's not in his nature. 
He's no less powerful today than he was then. So he's capable of doing these things. We should ask him to do these things. In many ways, Nehemiah chapter 8 is the pinnacle, the highlight, the standout chapter of the whole book, which is a little bit surprising in some ways. Because up to now, as we've been following the path of Nehemiah, it seems to have been a book all about rebuilding walls, doesn't it? And that's been challenging for Nehemiah, and it's been something of an epic adventure, even to get this far. But the climax of a book is not actually the walls going up, but it's God coming down. God visits his people. And we should have got the picture rightly from the reading that we had of something very remarkable going on. Of all the people, all the community, of the Jewish people, men and women, coming together around the water gate. And then God blitzing them, absolutely coming amongst them with power. And when God does this, moments of this kind, where a whole community gets impacted in a meaningful way over a sustained period of time, that's called revival. The theologian teacher, Jim Packer, comments on this passage, moments of this kind when minds and hearts are inundated and overwhelmed by the reality of God in his holiness and grace belong to the history we call revivals. And what occurred in Jerusalem in the seventh month of 44 BC was a revival. Revivals are a move of the spirit from start to finish. They owe their origin to a move of God. You, you and I can't crank up a revival. We can't twist God's arm in such a way that he'll be obliged to bring on a revival. Sometimes it's said, well, revivals always start with prayer, so get praying. But actually, the prayer starts with a move of the Spirit. So you, we only pray for revival because the Spirit's already moving in us. It's entirely a work of God from beginning to end. It's a bit like those times in the Old Testament where occasionally, let's say, um, Pharaoh getting Joseph in and saying, Joseph, I had a dream last night. Tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. You can't kind of blag your way on that one because unless God gives you the dream, you've got nothing to say which Pharaoh can connect with or, or um, the leader can connect with. So let's see what happens here. Let me point out some of the hallmarks of the revival. And the first one is in verse 1. This is definitely what we would have noticed first. And in today's culture, we might not even go any deeper than noticing this one thing, and we'd be wrong. And that is that God draws together an amazing crowd. Under the providence of God, before the day of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or any of that, God just uniquely brought together a crowd, a massive crowd, and they found themselves meeting at the water gate. It happens, we're told, that it was the first day of the seventh month, Tishri. And my commentaries tell me that this was also the first day in the secular calendar of a new year. So it was a New Year's Day. 
and it was the Feast of Trumpets, which is, you can find out about in Leviticus 23, 23. And that's why people were free to come. They weren't, it wasn't a working day, it was a holiday. But it is remarkable that God sometimes draws people spontaneously to want to come together. There's a clergyman of uh, years gone by called William Haslam. He uh, was an Anglican clergyman in Cornwall in the 1850s. And if you want to read a, a very eccentric biography, which will tell you a lot about the power of God, you can read his uh, autobiography called From Death to Life. You can find it online very easily. And tucked away in his autobiography are lots of insights into what happens when revivals come. And this is part of what he says happened in 1850. Sometimes, for no accountable reason, we saw the church thronged with a multitude of people from various parts, having no connection with one another, all equally surprised to see each other, and the regular congregation even more surprised to see the unexpected rush of strangers. After a time or two, we began to know the cause and understood that the coming together of the people was by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we prepared accordingly, expecting a great revival to follow. You can also find an example of this if you Google a man called Duncan Campbell and put in the words Hebridean revival. And you can hear him telling a story true story of how he goes out to the Hebrides in, in northern Scotland, off Scotland, and he arrives and he walks to this church in the middle of a field, and he takes a service. And the service is very, very poorly attended. Just a very few people scattered around this church. And he preaches, and at the end of the evening, he walks to the back of the church, and he can hear a man on his knees praying. And he says, the man praying is repeating time after time after time to God in prayer, Lord, you promised revival. Where is it? You dare not fail us. And as they walked out and it was dark and they walked out of the church, to their consternation, in every direction that they look, they see people streaming over the hills, gathering now in this church. And they have to have a second service that evening. And now the church is so crowded that he shares the pulpit with a number of women who are seated behind him in the pulpit. And they end up just crying out, confessing their sins, and revival breaks out in the Hebrides. But it is an example of God just drawing a crowd. But what's more remarkable, and what's more noteworthy, and what I want us to focus on is something that it's more important than the numbers. I think today, there's every chance we'd be wowed by the numbers and think that was the goal in itself. And I'm not impressed by numbers. Numbers don't really prove a thing. You can, you can easily, relatively easily, get a crowd together. But it's why they got together that's so outstanding. They were hungry for the word of God. They were desperate to connect with God. In verse 2, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, when God puts that on people's hearts, you can get really excited. 
Because Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That would be a wonderful thing to pray for. When God gets together groups of people spontaneously who are in earnest to seek God, that's a wonderful move of the Spirit. And then let's see the third thing that the Holy Spirit does here. He gives understanding. He gives understanding or revelation to the people. This is a key word in the entire chapter, as a matter of fact. It's repeated again and again in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 12. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And we all know that understanding the word of God is not directly related necessarily to our intellects. It's not brain power that enables the word of God to speak into our hearts. It's God's Holy Spirit. There have been some amazing, uh, high-powered, highly intelligent people who can't get to grips with the word of God at all. And some people who the world wouldn't think were that intelligent who have really grasped what God's like through the word of God. Because it's got everything to do with God revealing himself. And it's got quite a bit to do, actually, with our attitude that we bring to God. Do you remember that in Isaiah, God says, this is the one I will esteem. He that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He's describing an attitude there, isn't he? And we can tell from what we read here that this whole assembly were incredibly teachable. Because in verse 5 and 6, when Ezra opened the book, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And I don't think I'm reading too much into it to say they were submissive to God. They were saying to God, teach us, teach us. That was in their heart, a desire to be taught. And as the word of God is unfolded by Ezra and the scribes and others, two great things happen, which are, again, the hallmark of the Holy Spirit. Great conviction of sin and great joy that breaks out. Let me read you a little bit of that from William Haslam's book again. Sometimes, he writes, I've known children of the school commence crying for no ostensible reason when a few words about the love of God in giving his son or the love of Christ in laying down his life would prove enough to kindle a flame. And they begin to cry aloud for mercy. I've seen a whole school of more than a hundred children like this at the same time. An awakening of such a character was generally a token of a beginning of a work of God, which would last in power for four or five weeks, if not more, and then the quiet, ordinary work would go on as before. Duncan Campbell, talking of the Hebrides revival, speaks of people falling over in the presence of the Lord, sensing their own worthlessness and their sinfulness and confessing their sins. Or another picture of this is Whitfield preaching on the hills outside of Bristol 
to hun hundreds of coal miners who were so impacted and convicted by the word of God that Whitfield said he could see tear stains down their faces as their tears made inroads into the coal dust that they had on their faces and their cheeks. This is the work of the Spirit of God. The most amazing conviction. But here's, a, here's another work of the Spirit of God, which is so in your face and so obvious, you might have missed it. God's provision of Ezra. The provision of a man like Ezra. Let me explain why I say that. The people gathered around the water gate that day were in a real fix. They were returning exiles. They didn't speak Hebrew. Their language was completely different. They had no knowledge whatever of the word of God. They had no way of knowing how to find God or what was pleasing to God or how to connect with God. They were spiritually hungry, but where were they going to get that kind of information and connection? Well, there are times in Scripture where God does extraordinary things to link people up. It's almost like he, he writes in people's diaries, I want you in this place at this time so that you can meet that person. A very obvious example would be Philip the evangelist meeting the Ethiopian ruler in Acts chapter 8. Or you might think of Simeon and Anna meeting the baby Jesus when he's brought into the temple. Or an extraordinary time recorded in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses is being commissioned by God to go and lead the children of Israel. And Moses turns on God and says, I can't do that because I'm no kind of a spokesman. I get tongue-tied when I try and talk. And God has a master answer to that. He says, well, I know that. That's why your brother Aaron is on his way to meet you already. God is pulling the strings of these people, making sure they meet. And we can read that Ezra was sent by the Spirit of God. In the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, we read, Ezra had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now, here's a really key thing. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Just let that sink in for a minute. This little guy, well, I don't know he was little, but I'm guessing he was little. This little guy, day after day, just faithfully, faithfully familiarizing himself with the word of the Lord. So that when the day should come that people needed instruction in how to find God, he could provide it. And God bringing him in to Jerusalem for such a day as this. And that's so important. And I want us to latch on to this because, friends, we live in a day where not many not many are familiar with the ways of God. Not many are familiar with the words of Scripture. And a nation without the Scriptures is a nation that has lost its way to God. It's like, it would be like landing in a country without a map 
where 60% of the signposts have been taken down, and more and more people are telling you not to trust the signposts that are still up. That's what it would be like. And you see, in this country, I know we, we sort of know that people aren't reading the scriptures anymore, but it is shocking whenever people conduct a poll. A poll was done in January a few years ago, about six years ago, asking people some very simple questions. This was done in the UK. They were asked, where can an account of the story of the birth of Jesus be found? And despite it being just after Christmas, less than a third of those who were asked the question knew it could be found in the Bible. That's all they were asking. They weren't asking for specific reference. They had no idea that you could find an account of Jesus' birth in the Bible. They had no idea where the story of a good Samaritan could be found. Very few of them knew that David and Goliath is a biblical story. One in 10 of those asked thought that the story of King Midas was in the Bible. The only reason I'm flagging this with us is so that we get attuned to the fact it may very well be that many of the people you know, many of the people I know, they look at you as a source of authority to connect me to God. You know the scriptures, I don't. You bring me some kind of knowledge. I want to find God, but I wouldn't know where to turn. It's an amazing thought, isn't it, that according to that survey, anyway, if you could just simply say, well, you can find out about Jesus in the Bible, you'd have told them something you didn't know. There's a colossal responsibility on us to start investing in some kind of biblical knowledge so that when the day comes that people are hungry for God, they can turn to you and they can turn to me. And something very amazing happens as Ezra talks to them from the scriptures. And you've seen it already. Two things happened. They mourned and they wept as they were convinced and convicted of their shortcomings and their sin. But they also were full of joy as they were convicted and convinced of God's love for them. And that's what always happens when people connect with God in a real way. Those two things, repentance and faith. And as I was reflecting on it, it occurred to me, and I feel a bit dodgy saying this because I'm not sure that it's quite complimentary, and, but I think it's a startling fact, actually, that you and I can deliver a better message than Ezra. And that's not because we're better at speaking than Ezra, it's that there's been more revelation than in Ezra's day. We have seen the fulfillment of promise in Jesus Christ. We can speak of the love of God shown in Jesus Christ, and he couldn't. If someone comes to us and says, does God love me? We can point them to the cross. If someone comes to us and says, is death the end of a road? We can point to the resurrection. We have been entrusted with the most amazing news in the world which Ezra just dreamed of, literally, but we've seen fulfilled. And we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it's so encouraging that this work that took place at the Watergate, it wasn't a flash in the pan. 
It went on day after day, we're told in verse 18, day after day from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. And I just want to flag up, just before we go into a time of prayer together, the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit. He hasn't lost his potency. God's plan is the same plan. He hasn't changed his plans. He hears our prayers. He wants to make a difference. He has brought us here together to bless us, to connect us with him. That's what a blessing is, to connect us with him. One of my favorite verses in the scriptures is in Luke chapter 7, where as a little aside, Luke records that after Jesus had been at work in one place, people said to one another, God, God has come to help his people. That's what we should say to each other, really, every time we meet together. That's why I think it's a privilege to belong to a church, Jesus' church, because God comes to help his people.